0: Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. Today's episode is the first in our new series called Rational and it's entitled It's Okay to Doubt. We hope you enjoy. did a little research this week. I came across some interesting statistics that I thought were, uh, I guess, eye-opening into who we are as a culture, as a people, as humanity a bit. Um. National Poll released a few months ago, a few months into 2014 or or 2015. Which year is it? I don't know. Um, 37% of Americans believe that global warming is a hoax. 21% think that the U.S. government is covering up evidence of an alien existence. 28% (laughs) believe a secret elite power with globalist agenda is conspiring to rule the world. Only only hours after the recent Boston Marathon, so I guess that shows you where this was when this was. Only hours after the recent Boston Marathon bombing, numerous conspiracy theories were floated, ranging from a possible inside job uh, to YouTube videos claiming that the entire event was a hoax. Seven percent of Americans believe that the landing on the moon was fake. 6% of philosophers were studied throughout the philosophy departments in the United States. 6% doubt that anything that we see as as reality is actually reality, objective reality. 6% of all philosophers. i just bring those stats up to to maybe give us a little bit of an idea that doubt is a part of our culture. Uh, It's part of uh, the world we live in. We doubt things, whether you are... Uh, individually consider yourself a cynic or whether you um, uh, just know people who would maybe fall in those categories or conspiracy theorists, those kind of things. Uh, We live in a world where doubt does have a tendency to at least characterize who we are and uh, what we do in a lot of different ways. Excuse me, I'm just trying to make sure everything is set up here. Today's going to be a really strong just conversation, just so you're aware. If you see me fumbling, that's why. And by the way, I'm going to be over my head today. I'm just going to give you that a little bit. A, little few, a couple disclaimers. That's going to be a conversation. And I'm going to start, it, start the conversation out and uh, be very conversational with, with you. And then we are going to break and then we're going to come back together for those who want to stay and discuss the things that I've, I've presented. But uh, I say that as a disclaimer, and I also want to say that uh, I'm probably going to be over my head today, because we are going to be talking a lot about doubt. And even though doubt has defined us as a big characteristic of who we are as people, um, oftentimes we think maybe doubt is just for those outside the walls of the church. Like, doubt doesn't really have anything to do with Christians, right? Uh, Most great Christians would disagree. As a matter of fact, it's been interesting to read and study um, over the last little bit of time. Uh, some of the interesting things that I've discovered is that uh, doubt was characteristic of C.S. Lewis's life. Uh, those of you who know who C.S. Lewis was, he was for a long time one of the most well-known atheists in England, uh, became a believer. But even after he became a believer, he still was very, he characterized his life as being a, a life of, of frequent doubt because, as he would say, his moods would swing. And uh, he would lose sight of the reason in which he determined that his faith must be real. Mother Teresa, one of the people who we would, as, as uh, Christians in the general sense, look at as an example of what it means to be a, a religious fervor. If you ever get a chance to read some of her journal entries or her prayer books or her letters to other people, uh, she consistently reflected a heart of doubt and struggle with doubt of whether uh, what she was doing was worth it and whether God was real. Even some of the heroes that are from a little bit uh, longer ago in our faith, those who defined a bit of what Christianity is today, Martin Luther, uh, the father of the Reformation, oftentimes expressed struggle with doubt. Uh, John Calvin even. Uh, John Calvin, who is uh, one of the most articulate theologians and philosophers of, of history, uh, had this to say about doubt. This was in the context of a conversation that he was having with others about his own personal doubts. And then he said this about a bit of our, our approach on it. He says, Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Even John Calvin. Uh, there's, there's a denomination that basically is based on the teaching of John Calvin. He reflected on doubt. One of the greatest preachers... Of of the 1800s, uh, somebody that w- is so well known and so characterized as a strong follower of God, he's called the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon had this to say. He often, too, was assailed by doubts. He said, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, poor soul, I'm afraid you're not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve. That you would be so much ashamed of yourself, self, as even to say it is too good to be true. A doubt has a tendency to define and characterize who we are as people, but it also has a tendency to define who we are as Christians. Uh, even in the Bible, we see that we see Abraham, the great father of one of the great fathers of the faith, and in many ways the father of faith, as one who defined what faith meant is more often characterized in the stories about Abraham as someone who doubted than someone who had faith. We see it in David. I love Psalm 73. This is a portion of it from the message. I love how often, on, how often David was so honest. Psalm uh, 73, a portion of it says this. It says, this is from the message. Listen to this. This is great. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have made it piling up riches. I've, I've been stupid to play by the rules. You ever felt that way? What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. Here's how I found that psalm, by the way. Uh, so we, we know that David wrote most of the psalms, and I have read them in my life several times because they're very relevant to me because David is very honest and authentic. And I thought to myself as I was preparing this, you know, David was a guy who spoke often of doubt. And I did one of those little things where you just kind of thumb through the Bible and try to find something. I don't know if you've ever done it. So I was just starting the Psalms and started thumbing through. And at almost every single page of the Bible, of the Psalms, there was a Psalm that reflected some side of frustration with God, even to the point of the kind of doubt expressed in Psalm 73. Doubt characterizes who we are. Doubt characterized in some ways the book of, Dan- uh, book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah struggled with doubt specifically and deeply so. Even when we get into the New Testament, as the as the apostles are being chosen, doubt characterizes Nathaniel. Uh, clearly, uh, there's, a, there's an apostle who was with Jesus the entire time. He saw every miracle. He saw Jesus do Jesus do things that were amazing. He saw the integrity of Jesus. There's an apostle named Judas who had significant doubt. But if that's not good enough for you, what about Peter? Peter was an apostle who reflected consistent doubt. And then, of course, we've got us. Do you ever doubt? This is going to be a very personal series for me. That's the first sermon in a series we're going to be doing. It's a very personal series for me. It's a very personal message because I, too, doubt. Um, I would like to be up here and tell you uh, it would be safe for me to say, and it would feel good for me to say, I'd be okay with saying, probably even a little bit like like spiritually prideful to say, before I was a Christian, before I was a follower of Jesus, I had doubts whether God was real. It would be even okay for me to say something like, and nobody would have a problem with it, I wouldn't even think about it, think twice about it, to say, five years ago, as a follower of Jesus, I went through a season of life where I wondered whether God was real. Now, I don't know what you're going to think about this next statement, but it's true, so might as well say it. A month doesn't go by where I don't pray something like this. God, are you really real? Show me that you're real. I doubt. Now, that may not be your experience. You may not be like I am. You may not be like some of the people we've mentioned today, but I think a lot of us doubt the veracity, the reality, the integrity of Christianity. Now, that may have kept you away from the faith. Maybe you're not even a believer because you don't believe there are good reasons to believe. But good news is, the Bible actually speaks to us and actually tells us a, a story, an example from the life of Jesus. It helps us understand that A, it's, it's kind of okay to doubt, and B, what to do when those doubts come about. The thing that's going to show us, is in John chapter 20, and if you want to turn there, you can. But even before you, before you read it, it's going to show us that it's, it's okay to doubt. Uh, the doubts aren't such a big deal, that they're not so dangerous. After you get turned there, I'm going to read you a quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor uh, in, in New York City. One of my favorite pastors to read because he's not, uh, for lack of better words, he's a thinker. Um, his religion isn't based on just emotions and feelings. He's a thinker. And uh, I appreciate his thoughts on things often. He says this, he says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. So with that in mind and that context in mind, I want us to look at the story of Somebody who's, who we, we call Thomas. What do we call Thomas? We call him Doubting. Doubting Thomas. And he's the guy in the Bible that is most characterized unfairly by one moment of his life. Did you know that, by the way, Thomas, uh, we, we know him as Doubting Thomas... Um, after the resurrection of Christ, uh, church history tells us that uh, so this isn't in the Bible, so it's not 100% accurate, but, but the historical documents that we have uh, several hundred years after the Bible do point to the fact that Thomas left Jerusalem as one of the first missionaries and died uh, for his faith in India, serving Christ and proclaiming the gospel in India. I'd just like to keep that in mind as we think about doubt, because it's so hard for us to admit that we doubt. We think it's this life-ending, life-altering moment that if, if you have one second of doubt, you can't be used for God. But here we got Thomas, the guy who's most characterized by doubt of all of the folks in the Bible, living this powerful life for Jesus, and yet he is characterized by doubt. So we're, here's what we're going to read. We're reading John chapter 20. And we're going to start in verse 24. Before we start reading, so what's happened is, is Jesus has been, been resurrected from the dead. He died on the cross. Um, three days later, he, he came back alive from the dead which is a pretty significant thing in the, in the history of Christianity. Kind of the linchpin belief. You believe that, then everything else has a tendency to fall in place. If you don't believe that, nothing does. Uh, and so Jesus has uh, been resurrected from the dead. So this is a key idea about what we believe as Christians, right? The key idea of what we believe about Christians, as Christians. And uh, he's appeared to some folks. He just has appeared to almost all of the apostles in the upper room. Uh, the, Judas isn't there clearly, uh, but, uh, but also Thomas isn't there. He's not in the upper room when Jesus appears. So later, some of the apostles are telling Jesus uh, what, what they experience. And this is where we pick up in verse 24 of John chapter 20. It says, One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. Let's have to pause and say, isn't it cool how often the people in the Bible had nicknames? Like Peter was the rock, uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, um, I think that should be like a spiritual practice. We ought to give each other nicknames. Um, so uh, Thomas, he was nicknamed the twin, uh, was not with the others when Jesus came. So he wasn't in the upper room when Jesus, Jesus showed up the first time. But they told him, this is what the other disciples, other apostles told him. They told him, we have seen the Lord. He's alive. We saw him. He was here. We hung out with him. We talked with him. We saw him. He was, he was around us. He's alive. He's not dead. He resurrected from the dead. But he replied, "I won't believe it unless I won't believe it unless." I put some dots there, ellipsis, an improperly formed ellipsis. It looks like, but uh, put some ellipsis there because I don't know how you would have to answer that question. Now, whether you are a skeptic, and by the way, you're welcome, welcome to be one. Uh, This is a conversation for everybody. Whether you're a skeptic uh, who completely is either agnostic or genuinely truly atheistic towards the existence of God. Or whether you are a believer like me who finds yourselves in moments where you go, is this real? Maybe you would say you have doubtful moments. What does it take to answer the question of what would help you believe? Or what would it take for you to believe that Jesus is, is truly the Messiah? What would it take? Now, if you can even as a believer or follow follower of Christ get yourself into the mindset that you can be in, or maybe that you have been in, or that you have some friends who are in, that it's hard to believe, or if you truly are a skeptic, how would you answer the question, what would it take for me to believe without doubt, with certainty, or at least with probability, that Jesus Christ is God, or that even God exists? I want you to ponder that question. If you have your notes and want to even take a second to reflect on that and write it down, I'm not going to give a lot of pause or time, but I do want you to reflect on that. What would it take for you to believe? We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But I do want you to see how Jesus responded to Thomas's need to answer that question. Now, before we respond to it, think about how we as Christians oftentimes are rightfully accused of responding to those kind of questions. And I say rightfully accused because this is how we have a tendency to do it. You shouldn't have any doubts. You shouldn't have any questions. You should just believe. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a believer just in the last two days, a believer that I highly respect, who was talking about beginning to read in the book of Genesis, reading Genesis 1 and how God created the earth. And this, this individual who I love dearly, stated to me, um, I can't, I, the only way I can accept this is on faith. And my, my gut, actually a little bit more pejorative and curt answer to that was, if I had no rational reasons to believe what I believe, I wouldn't believe it. And that person, of course, just shook it. Just shook, because I was challenging their, their worldview a little bit. Challenging their thinking that they are only accepting this by faith. And I said, no, I don't, I don't believe anything just out of a blind leap of faith. I believe nothing, me personally, out of a blind leap of faith. I was challenging that we as Christians are actually good when we're in a space like that, that that's a safe place to be. I was challenging that because not only does the Bible challenge that way of thinking, but all of Christian history challenges that way of thinking. The idea that Christianity is just a blind leap of faith, not based on any rationality, any empirical evidence is not the, not the thought process of Christians for the entire 2,000 years of Christian history, other than some small little pockets of Christianity that we experience, you know, maybe here or there in modern era. So it's okay for us as Christians when we ask a question like that to ourselves or when it's asked of us to give reasons for what we believe. You don't maybe believe me, that's fine. Look how Jesus responded. So again, we'll pick up in twenty-five verse B. I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. So uh, if you're if you are like me and like to pretend you're a philosopher, which is what I like to do, some of you guys who I've got, had philosophical discussions with, I'm not one, but boy, I do like to think I am and pretend I am. Uh, so I, re- I really struggle with this. But if you're a philosopher, or like to pretend you are, he's looking for empirical evidence. He wanted empirical evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. That this theology, this belief, this faith wasn't just mystical, wasn't just fanatical. He wanted empirical evidence that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Well, how did Jesus respond? Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, just like before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Common greeting, just a normal greeting. That's how a Jewish person would have greeted a room during this time. Then he said to Thomas, hmm, to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Thomas, with evidence in front of him, but only with evidence, my Lord, And my God, Thomas exclaimed. So as we dig in today to this idea of what does it mean to believe, and we are just going to start this idea, I want to ask the question or help us understand why Jesus answered the question. He answered the question this way. He answered the question of of whether the resurrection was believable or a believable tenant by giving proof. Again, I don't know that a lot of times we as Christians do that. We say you shouldn't have to have proof. You shouldn't have to have reasons. You shouldn't have to have empirical evidence. It's a decision of faith. That's not how Jesus responded to Thomas. Jesus validated the Thomas's doubts. He was okay with his doubts. And he met them where they were. If we were to look back through history, though, over the last 2,000 years, and we were to approach Thomas at different eras, eras, sorry, I can't speak. If we were to approach Thomas at different eras, we might run into a different kind of Thomas. So this is going to get a little bit hairy. So if I say something um, and this and this kind of like isn't clear or it's confusing or I need to say again, just say Lance. and need to say it's a conversation, okay? So but but if we look at it through different times of ages of history of of thinking, we would find that Thomas might would have been different than he is currently. So so than he is in this present thing. But so as we look back through history, with the first Thomas we might would come through at least in the modern era is rational Thomas. So what in the world of Rational Thomas? Rational Thomas would be a son of Rene Descartes. He's very famous for saying what? I think, I, I think, therefore I am. He's called the father of modern philosophy. Now you don't need to know that or you can care about that except for he started to find a way of thinking about the, about the world or thinking about things that said that the only way we can really truly understand what's true and what's real is through rational approaches, logic. Uh, that's the only way we can understand what truth is or what reality is, is through rationalism. And that's what Rene Descartes started thinking. So, um, as, we, as we dig into that and as we look at that, uh, we see that the first era of thinking was defined by Rene Descartes. So what would rational Thomas need to hear? And we'll come back to that in a minute. Well, a uh, a little bit after Rene Descartes, um, a gentleman named Francis Bacon began to determine a different way of thinking. We might call that empirical Thomas. So if a Thomas would have been approached uh, later, it would have been empirical Thomas. Kind of similar to the one we actually reach. And that's a different kind of thinking. And it was almost a reaction to the thinking of Rene Descartes, or rationalism. It was the idea that you shouldn't believe anything unless it can be proved with sense data. Things you can touch and see and hear. That's empirical evidence. It's the evidence of the physical universe. It's the evidence that our scientists would use. Uh, uh, I guess I would say valid science would use to determine what is real or what's not real. They would use empirical evidence. So if Jesus were to approach um, Thomas at a later time, he might approach empirical Thomas. And then uh, my favorite one of all, not really, actually my least favorite, is existential Thomas. So, uh, in the current age, we are more in an era of what's called existential thinking. And existential thinking was really the, uh, I guess, the founder of it. The founder of existentialism is Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, we oftentimes have a tendency to think more and follow more of the thinking of Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, as, as a culture. I say we. I say, I'm talking about big swipes of culture. So, why in the world are we talking about these guys at church on Sunday morning? Because Jesus in his address to Thomas told us that the way we address doubts is to understand those doubts really well and to address them where they are. For us to address doubts, both in ourselves and in others, we have to understand where our culture is, where our world is. Not only from a philosophical or or theoretical way, but each of us probably live in this space in somewhere that One of these three spaces, or a combination of those three spaces, pretty regularly in how we think about life. All right, got one person yawning already. I'll go fast. Um, uh, so we have a tendency to process the world right here in this way. This is how the question Thomas would ask us in the different eras of society. So just real quickly, I want to address uh, what it might look like for us to answer rational Thomas. Thomas. So if we were going to answer irrational, Thomas, as to whether God is real, and that's where we're going to start, right? You've got to start with the idea of whether God exists or not. Uh, we might want to answer the question of, is there, is there rational reasons to believe that God exists? Now, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of books written about the existence of God by philosophers and against the existence of God, right? By philosophers throughout all of time. So am I going to be able to give a well-formed, A to Z, tight-knit proof of the existence of God this morning? No. And by the way, that's not even the goal of any argument for the existence of God. Never are we should we find ourselves in a position, nor would should anyone ask you to be in a position, to prove without doubt that there's, God exists. What we're looking at is to prove, to prove that it's probable that God exists, just at least from, a, from an argument standpoint, from, a, from it's more probable that he exists than he doesn't exist, because by the way, that's how science operates is around the era of, or around the concept of probability. Rick has a thought. Well
1: I just wanted to make one observation, and that is this: that I and I would say probably most humans require proof for very few of our decisions hmm. and
0: actions. Hmm. Certain proof, certainty.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm assuming proof is, although we generally require evidence Hmm. to guide us in a decision.
0: That is such a great point. So, and I'm going to pause there for 30 seconds to re say that and make sure we're all on the same page that because I think it's very important. So, when we talk about the difference between certainty and probability, it's very similar to what, what Rick is saying. We don't necessarily, in life's decisions, require proof, but we do require evidence. We do require um, enough evidence that decision A is more valid than decision B uh, before we move on. For instance, uh, and, and I probably think of this because you're the one who articulate that, if I'm looking to invest in a certain stock, I'm not looking to, without with certainty, that stock, the stock is going to go up and make me money. Because if I waited until there was certainty, I would never invest any money, Right. I'm, I'm potentially, hopefully, researching that company until there is evidence that it's probably, that there's probability that it's going to go up. Is that a little bit uh, the yeah. direction you're going in? Simpler
1: versions because um, you know, I'm, you may go to a restaurant this afternoon, and you won't require proof that it's there. You know it was there yesterday. Maybe you heard somebody said they were there this morning. That's not proof, but it does, But it is evidence. Uh, so you'll make an assumption based on that. And that's really the way we function as humans is based on just a large series of assumptions in life.
0: That is a very, very valid point. And it's very important for us to keep that in mind as we dig in on this. Um So I want to dig into, as we move through this, I'm going to give you, I'm not even going to get into the Unmoved Mover for the sake of time. We can talk about it later. Uh, Maybe this quick, simple summary, of. I always do that. I'm not going to do that, and then I do it, so I'm going to do it. The quick summary is is that anything in motion has to be put in motion. Uh, Rationally, we know this in reality. Anything in motion has to be put in motion. Our universe is in motion because time and space is in motion. So for, a, for an entity that's, that is time and space that's in motion, must be put, in, put into motion by something that is not within time and space, therefore is eternal and infinite. Yes, did I do a horrible job of describing that? Absolutely. Move on. That was 30 seconds that bored most of you to death. So, then there's argument from design. So I think this one will probably speak to you in just a bit. So the argument from design, or some people call this the teleological argument, is that because of the design of the universe, and this could be a little bit empirical and rational, but it's usually considered a rational argument. If you walked in here and you, you, in the morning, you were the first person to get here at about uh, maybe 8.45. You, got, you walked in here, and on the floor, uh, the tooth, there were toothpicks everywhere, and you, you started paying attention, and they spelled out a sonnet from Shakespeare. What would you believe?
1: That there had been an author. Somewhere. That there had been
0: an author. Somebody came into this room and created uh, the Shakespearean sonnet out of toothpicks. Now... Is there Are there reasons to believe that maybe it's, uh, it's chance? Maybe somebody just came up to the top of the balcony, dropped some, I don't know how you got them to there, but dropped some toothpicks onto the floor and they just by chance. Maybe they did it a thousand times and if you drop toothpicks a thousand times, or maybe if you did it a million times, or maybe if you did it ten billion times, or a trillion times, you would eventually drop the, sh- the toothpicks on the floor and they would form Shakespearean sonnet. This is the argument, though, from design, that there has to be a, a creator, there has to be an intelligent personal designer to the universe. This isn't speaking to whether evolution is true or not true. This is just speaking to the reality of God. Matter of fact, there is, um, uh, I have to show you this. There is a gentleman by the name of Anthony Flew, and he, he was an atheist. Matter of fact, you, you guys familiar with Richard Dawkins? He just nod. Richard Dawkins is uh, probably one of the more famous atheists of today, um, part of what's called the New Atheism Movement. Uh, Richard Dawkins is uh, today what Anthony Flew would have been during most of the 1900s, the most well-known antagonistic atheist on the planet, a philosopher in the University of Reading. Am I saying that right in Reading England? I never, I never knew Reading, that. Right. Reading, okay. I should, I should have changed the spelling because it's England, like it's never how it looks. Um, the River Thames, uh, that one too. Um, but so, so anyway, Anthony Flew was was the was a well-known long-term uh, uh, philosopher, a- atheistic philosopher, and he, he actually said this. Uh, regarded to, uh, to DNA research. For years he was against the existence of God, but uh, shortly before his death, about ten years before he died, he became a, a deist. He never became a Christian, but he, he came to the point where he said, yeah, God has to exist. And the reason he concluded that was, DNA research, he said, has shown by the almost unbelievable com- complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. So here you have basically the idea of a Richard, Richard Dawkins-level atheistic philosopher switching from being atheistic to deistic because of design. We could go into that a lot. The other question we might ask rationally is, God's existence a better explanation for how we see the universe? Uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit more in this series. So we can move to the next one. Rational uh, Thomas. We might also look at empirical Thomas. And we're not going to dig into this much because we're going to do this over the next few weeks. Are the Scriptures reliable? So we have a book that we believe is, is God's Word Um, At the very least, we believe that it's reflective of an authoritarian historical document about the universe and about what we should believe. Uh, those of us who follow Jesus believe that it's, it's more special than that. But at the very least, it's a reliable historical document. And we want to be able to ask the question, is there empirical evidence for that? The good news is there is, and we're going to look at that next week. Um, is there evidence, empirical evidence for the resurrection? Uh, we said it at the very beginning, the belief in Jesus, that Jesus is God, lives or dies by the fact of whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead... Everything we believe is true and worthwhile. He is Lord. He is King. He is God. We have to follow Him. If He didn't, who cares? Why are you doing here? Let's go somewhere. Let's go watch this. Is football on? Like, what's the point? So we're going to look at is there empirical evidence of the resurrection? Uh, good news is I believe there is quite, quite a strong bit. But other than empirical, I do want to wrap up by looking at existential Thomas. Existential Thomas is the, the era of the day, so how do we get to existentialism and what does it mean? So rational, rationality said logic and rationality is how we determine what's true. Empirical, the empirical approach to life was we have to prove it by what we see, by sense data. Now existentialism basically said all of that's doubtable. We, ha- we, can, we have to doubt logic because one proof on top of another proof proves the other proof wrong. Does that make sense? So we, just keep, so we just keep proving ourselves wrong. So this guy says this, and he has this tight-knit, perfectly well-formed, seems to be rational argument for, for an idea. Then somebody else comes along and has another pro- tight-knit proof for, for another idea that's contrary to it. Over and over and over throughout time, we've experienced these, what would appear to be rational arguments for, counter, for, for ideas that are contrary to each other. So these existentialists say we can't, trust, we can't trust logic. Not only that, can we ever get outside of logic enough? Are outside of our own ideas enough to be able to validate that the argument's premises, the ideas that form an argument, are valid in, in themselves. So hopefully that made sense. So the, anyway, they doubt, they doubt whether we can be rational beings or not. Whether we can make a decision based on rationality. But they also doubt empirical evidence. Because they say, uh, uh, an, empir- an existentialist would say, uh, we, can't, we can't get any information from empirical evidence either because it's too much interpretation involved. I go back to the, um, I go back to the uh, global warming thing. How many of you, when I read that, went, yeah, I kind of believe that, too? I bet, I bet a lot of us did in this room. Yeah, yeah see? Why? Because we have scientists on one, one side of the global warming argument that say... Global warming's false based on the scientific evidence. We have other people on the other side of the global warming evidence to say global warming is true based on scientific evidence. There was the big hubbub in the news, if you guys remember, about uh, global warming scientists had tr- had faked a lot of the evidence to prove their theory. Now, whether you believe it or not, that, that was just in the news. I don't know what to say or think on that, so don't, I'm not giving my opinion on anything at this point about that. Uh, but the point is is that scientists are... are uh, they fall, fall prey to their own desires and their own thinkings on things. So as we interpret what we see in the world, I will interpret it one way based on beliefs I already possess. A scientist that believes differently will interpret it a different way based on their beliefs. So we doubt rationality, and now we doubt empirical information as well. Does that make sense? Right, you can ask questions in a minute if you need to. Because my brain's hurting, to be honest with you. Uh, so they, they get to the point where we can't we can't doubt we, we doubt rationality we doubt empirical evidence we doubt everything nothing can be known as a matter of fact the uh, what most people would say the uh, deepest extension or the most most logical strange word to use in this moment um, result of existential thinking is nihilism or nihilism depending on how you want to pronounce it anybody know what the word nihilism actually means or nihil actually in, means in, in German nothing. But there's just nothing. Nothing can be known. Nothing is. There's no knowledge. We can know nothing. And it leads us to our relativism that we find dominating our culture. I do want to speak to that for five seconds. I know I'm running a little bit long, but look, give me a few seconds to, to land the plane on this, and then we'll wrap it up. So is it, relativism even possible? And I think it's important because we're going to make a lot of truth claims over the next few weeks. And if you, if you stand in the place of relativism... Um, Your arguments can be, well, I just don't accept that because, yeah, they're logical and rational, yeah, there's empirical evidence, but I don't have to believe it because I believe my own thing and I feel my own way, which would be an existential way of looking at things. Um, So, is that valid? Well, at least consider a couple of arguments. Again, thousands of pages have been written. I'm not going to stand up here and just defeat existentialism, the thinking of our modern age in three minutes, right? I mean, y'all, that would be unfair for me to try to do that or you to explain it. But think about this. First thing to think about is, uh, is it not self-defeating? So the old, the old story goes this way. There are no absolutes, someone might say to you. And what could be your response to them? Your response might be, are you absolutely sure? It is a self-defeating proposition. So it cannot be an absolute that there are no absolutes if there are no absolutes. That'll hurt your head a little bit. It is a self-defeating. So while that may sound uh, easy to say and even maybe like cliche, it is actually scientifically or maybe I should say philosophically sound to state that it is irrational whether rationality applies or not may be an argument, but it is irrational literally, by what the word rational means. It is irrational to believe that there are absolutely no absolutes. Right? Okay. So that's the first thing. That maybe, yeah. Isn't
1: it the law of non-contradiction that is, that's based
0: on? I mean, yeah, and, and, and a, a, something cannot be A and not B. Not, uh, so something cannot be A and not A at the same time. Sorry, I won't go any deeper than that. So, Relative misery. but let's just move on past the, the logical part of it. And let's, let's dig into this. Let's dig into, does our world work that way? Is that what we experience? I believe that you should just, whatever's true, whatever you think is true, whatever you think is right is right. I just, just whatever, whatever you feel. Okay, you really believe that? Can I build you an airplane based on that, pros- that philosophy? I mean, seriously, like, can I really build you an airplane based on my philosophy of what's true and what's objective reality? And will you get in it? especially if I like get you in it up high like drop it well you get it you won't you won't get into that but but I I, I think airplanes should be like box shaped and I think they should I think they should have like pretty little flappy birdie wings on the side I just that's that's how I feel <laughs> you're not gonna get in my airplane that's not the way the world works that is an unrealistic whether we as as pretend, imaginary, or even professional f- philosophers that are way over there that are beyond me want to say that that is a good way to think. Uh, how silly has it become that we are so, in our philosoph- philosophical and thinking patterns of our culture, that we are so afraid to accept objective reality and objective truth and even the existence of God that we have come up with things so absurd as relativism. So that we have, and I know people believe it who are really smarter than me. So I, I should be more gentle. So forgive me. But I'm just telling you like I think it is absurd, as, re- absurd, as relativism, or even that that uh, we're just potentially big brains in a vat with needles poked in our brains, and that's all reality is, or that the reality is a software construct like the Matrix. That we have gotten so far from dealing with reality in rational empirical ways that that oftentimes is considered more valid thinking and I'm not talking about faith, I'm talking about thinking than to think that there's an objective reality that we know through rational and empirical ways. So the world's not that way. But I will say this existentialism is right on this and this is kind of where I'll wrap it up. I said that three times I promise this is the real one. So I appreciated uh, existentialism on this and that is, is they believe that the reason any argument is positioned is because you already believe it. The only reason that you argue for something, whether rationally or empirically, is because you already believe that it's true. Whether you're aware of it or not. And the reason you, you argue for it is to, according to Nietzsche, and uh, especially Nietzsche, is that you argue for it because you're looking for a way to, to rise to power, become in, to, to take control whether individually or as a small community or as a big community. It's the only reason you would do it. So all truth is, all truth claims are just a claim to power, trying to take control, trying to be in charge. That's what, what they would say. Now, now, I think there's some value in that. Just just want to say that. Uh, there's some value in the reality that the only reason I would argue for something rationally or empirically is because I already believe it. It's really what Richard Dawkins has recently said. Um, Richard Dawkins said this recently. He said, he was asked by a fellow, a fellow philosopher, I cannot say his name, Bakhozian, we'll say that's his name. Um, he was asked, what would it take uh, so that if the stars aligned, it wouldn't be enough for you to believe in God? In other words, if the stars like spelled out, there is a God, that wouldn't be enough. But what would persuade you? He asked Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins responds, Well, I'm starting to think nothing would. nothing would. Nothing could persuade me. There is no evidence available or possible that would persuade me that God exists. Nothing would persuade me that God exists. Which in a way goes against the grain. Because I'm always paid lip service to, view, to, to the view that a scientist should change his mind when evidence is forthcoming. What's he admitting? Doesn't. Doesn't want to believe. The reason any of us believe anything is because, at least at the outset, we either want to or we don't. The reason that you and I can pursue with honesty and authenticity that God exists is because we want to believe exists. I think it, by the way, is on us and one of the things we're going to try to do is believe that it's something that we should want. It's a better idea. It's a better story. If someone doesn't believe in God, even as Richard Dawkins is saying, the main reason is because they don't want to believe. So, we'll go back to our question and wrap it up with this. What would it take for you to believe? Maybe you've even asked that question, like, why is God not more obvious? Like, if God was real, wouldn't He be more obvious? I've asked that before. And then I think... And maybe you've had this thought too. What would it take for me to like have absolute, at least strong enough evidence that it was strong enough probability that I just stopped doubting and never had another doubt? And I think, well, you know, I, I think if God would just like appear to me, like physically appear to me, that would help. And maybe while He was here, He would do some like, like things to show me that He was really God. Some miracles. You know what I mean? Like some really cool things. Like maybe, maybe He would like turn water into wine or something. Or maybe if he would like walk on water, I think that would be really cool. Then I would start to believe. Maybe he would heal somebody that was impossible to be healed. Maybe he would even show the greatest form of love that I can possibly imagine. Sacrificing himself. Suffering eternal torment for like the whole world. Like, maybe he would do that. Maybe even... He would do the most amazing miracle that I can imagine, and that is defeat death, like come back alive from the dead. Clearly. I speak tongue-in-cheek a bit, right?
1: Hey, it's not really, though. No, there's one passage that I think is highly, highly relevant at this moment, and I won't read the whole thing, but it is when this man uh, is compared to Lazarus Luke, and he's looking at hell. And he's actually in hell. Hmm. And he says, I want to go back and tell my brothers to protect them. And here's the way that dialogue ends. Um, Jesus says, uh, he, he says, no father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said this to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead which is one of the great ironies of all scripture, you know, because he eventually does (laughs) himself right Right. from the dead. But it is the basic point that I think we should recognize, really, as we ever discuss this subject, is that a lot of the arguments we hear are going to be from people that don't want to believe the truth from the beginning. And I, I say that as somebody who at one point in time was at that point. I did not want to believe.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, and, and I think at the end of the day, the, the reason why we bring up Rick and I bring up this, this idea is because it also makes me ask the question, how many times, you know, how often would this need to happen, this journey that I just articulated, which clearly has happened in the life of Jesus, right? How often would it need to happen? Um, and I think rationally, we would say it only needed to happen one time. And it has happened one time in the life of Jesus. Now, is it on us to start beginning to give some proof that the life of Jesus as it's reflected in Scripture is true, rational, maybe there's not certainty, but it's probable, maybe there's not proof, but there's evidence, to use them in better language? Yes, it is. Um, Karl Barth, the great theologian, he's, he, somebody got into his, uh, uh, the trolley with him to ride through, through Switzerland, the Basel, Switzerland, where he was from. And the guy was just visiting Basel. And he, said, he says, Barth says to this guy, Karl Barth, a well-known theologian and philosopher. Um, Barth says to him, he says, "Oh, are you a visitor? Yes, I am. So, what are you here for?" He said, "Oh, I'm, I can't wait to see the thing. But my, my, hopefully, my most exciting thing would be is to meet the great theologian Karl Barth." He's like, "Are you kidding me? You want to meet Karl Barth?" He says, "Yes, I want to meet Karl Barth." He's like, "Do you know Karl Barth?" He's like, "I give him a shave every single morning." <laughs> So, oh, wow, you give him a shave every single morning. Well, Carl Barth couldn't reveal the secret to him. He like, just couldn't bring himself to reveal that I'm Karl Barth. So he allowed the guy to get out of the, the trolley and go about his life. But he, he, when he would tell the story, Carl Barth would recount how pleasant, how much pleasure he would get from the reality to hear that man tell the story later to his friends. Oh, you just won't believe who I met today. Well, what would you meet? I met the man who gives Carl Barth a shave every single morning. All the while... He'd truly been in the presence of the real thing. The evidence is there. Our God is here. He's with us. Just look up and see Him. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast. To hear other messages in this series or to check out more about our church, please visit us at www.restorationchurch.us or you can follow us on Facebook at RestorationDCH.